Good morning, EMU community. Good morning, friends and colleagues. This is Brian Martin Burkholder, campus pastor and director of campus ministries and chair also of the convocation committee. And I'm delighted that this convocation is part of the ACE Festival. Professor of Language and Literature, Marty Eads, will be introducing this particular convocation in a, in a minute. I want to acknowledge there's so much going on. Uh, the ACE Festival events through this week, wow. And so it's an honor that you chose this particular contribution to the ACE Festival. And let's acknowledge that so much more is going on in the world. Uh, the verdict uh, in the Derek Chavin trial guilty of second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. Uh, many see this moment as historic, significant certainly uh, in, the, um, in the work for racial justice and the dismantling of white privilege and white supremacy and the systemic nature of these things. Um, one of George Floyd's brothers, in the family's press conference an hour or so after the verdict said, we're able to breathe again. And President Joe Biden um, said, let's also be clear that such a verdict is oh so rare, much too rare. And so for many people, it seems like it took a unique and extraordinary convergence of factors for the judicial system to deliver just basic accountability and Vice President Kamala Harris, in her remarks, said, still, it can't take away the pain. A measure of justice is not the same as equal justice. This verdict bring to, brings us a step closer. And the fact is, we still have work to do. We acknowledge this historic time, all that it brings up, pain, loss, joy, celebration, maybe just a bit more hope for the world, for a just world. Let us breathe together in this moment. And maybe you want to mark the day in some way. I've lit a candle, you can see it behind my shoulder, a sign of hope. Let us breathe in some hope. And breathe out concerns and loss, lament, Breathe in together as community and release our breath into this space of this convocation. Thank you. Marty, I turn the program over to you and I appreciate your planning. Thank you so much, Brian. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our conversation about Rabbi Niles Goldstein's 10th book, Eight Questions of Faith, biblical questions that guide and ground our lives. After having Rabbi Goldstein with us in person during the book's early gestation, we're really happy that he has come back to EMU, if only virtually, for this year's ACE, Academic and Creative Excellence Festival. We're also grateful to FNM Bank, returning again this year as sponsors of the ACE Festival, and to Diane Bowman Farrar, who keeps everything running. Rabbi Goldstein will offer our keynote address tonight at 7.30, before which you'll get to hear about his many accomplishments and accolades. 
This morning, though, since we have such a short time, we're going to focus on his book rather than on his biography. And this book seems just right for us in a year in which many of us have more than ever before wanted to find guidance and grounding for our lives. I found this book's honest grappling not only with scripture, but also with many other works of literature to be provocative and illuminating. And so I'm eager to hear this morning from four folks I know from our campus who ask big questions and who are always seeking guidance and grounding and helping others find it. So each of these representatives of our community will speak for about five minutes about two chapters of the book and Rabbi Goldstein will respond briefly to each. And we've joked about this being a little bit like the samples you get at a certain big box um, store. <laughs> so we're offering tidbits, they're offering tidbits to you that will um, make you want to read more. And we do have a few print copies of Rabbi Goldstein's book at the, um, in the second floor of Roselawn in the reception area, on the second floor of, of our building. So you can come by and take one of those. And if we're out, send me an email and I'll send you a link to the ebook. But um, in this brief time of conversation, we're hoping to whet your appetite to read the book for yourself if you haven't already. And then we'll hear more from Rabbi Goldstein tonight. But our panelists today are Jonas Ketzela, a, journey, a senior nursing major who comes to us from Mojo, Ethiopia. He's been in the United States for some years now, but he's a native of Ethiopia, and he'll be focusing on chapters one and two. Our second presenter, Caleb Schrockhurst, has deep roots in the Shenandoah Valley. He was born in Goshen, Indiana, and is an alumnus of our English department, and now in his first year of seminary at EMS. Our third presenter is Tim Seidel, he is the um, Assistant Professor of Peacebuilding and Development and Director of the Center for Interfaith Engagement. He'll be focusing on chapters five and six. And he grew up in California where uh, Rabbi Goldstein now lives. Our final presenter is Fatima Subdi, who is a native of Diala, Iraq. She too has been in the States for a number of years. And, um, she is a sophomore psychology major and she'll help wrap up with the book's two final chapters. So I'm really happy to introduce these folks to you, to introduce Rabbi Goldstein to you. And um, Jonas, would you please launch our conversation? Thank you so much, Marty. And I'm very excited and very glad to be here with our guest today. And I'm going to give my reflection on the first two chapters of the book. Uh, and the way I wanna do that is uh, by giving you uh, three terms that I want you to connect and think about. The first one is self-awareness, fear of death and love. What is self-awareness? And what do we mean when we say one is self-aware? Why do we fear death? And why do we always try to run away from it? And there is a very specific uh, passage on uh, page 14 that really intrigued me. And it goes like this. When we reach an awareness of our own transience and fragility. It is only natural to feel powerful emotions, especially those of anger and sorrow. Yet that same consciousness can serve us as a catalyst for growth, an opportunity to uncover within ourselves capacities for courage and fortitude we never knew we possessed. 
This passage, I believe, is challenging us to see the experience of fear of death as a very important aspect of what it means to be human. And when we deny our inner experience of fear of death, we may lose something, something that's very essential for our psychological development. And what I'm very curious about is in this fear of death, in this experience of fear of death, what is the role of love? How do we retain self-love in the, like in the face of fear of death? Can both love and fear coexist in our soul? Or uh, is this like an existential choice that we face like when we come to our uh, self-awareness? Thank you so much. Um, Jonas, uh, Jonas, sorry, thank you um, very much for uh, your thought. And uh, thanks, Brian and Marty and everyone who's joined me this morning. Uh, let me just say I'll be talking more tonight, but um, I spent a wonderful semester at EMU, uh, having been brought down there through the Center for Interfaith Engagement, uh, which Tim uh, Seidel now leads, uh, but teaching a couple courses at EMU and then having an association with Mennonites for a couple of years of my life uh, was transformative for me. And it was an honor to finish up this book while I was uh, living there. Um, so Jonas, uh, you, it, it, I'm three hours behind you guys. So greetings from, from Napa Valley. Uh, and I'm having my coffee. You raise uh, big ideas, big questions that um, are challenging to address anytime, but particularly early in the morning, for me at least. And, you know, I think I wanted to open up the book with um, this question from the prophet Jeremiah. And I'll be talking about this tonight during my keynote, um, which is, you know, why did I come forth from the womb? It's almost this suicidal death wish, this, this outburst that Jeremiah has uh, in a, a section of his book uh, known as the Confessions. And a lot of it is, is grounded in this awareness of his fragility, his transience, his mor mortality. And in the case of Jeremiah as a prophet, the added burden uh, of being a prophet, which I'll talk about tonight. But to your point, I think any sentient being, um, any human being, who thinks deeply about the human about about our existential journey is at one point or another going to be confronted with the idea that we're going to die i think it probably happens more uh frequently and more profoundly as we get older uh in my case it started when i was pretty young and i think it can happen at, at any age i don't think it only happens you know when you're 30 or 40 or 50 or or, or older um, I think any sensitive, thoughtful person at one point or another is going to have to face this reality. And then we have to decide, you know, how to respond to it. Because as, as you point out, Jonas, um, sometimes we feel fear uh, and sometimes anxiety and other times we feel anger. I know when I was younger, anger was a, was a predominant emotion for me um, as a young man. You know, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to be fragile and impermanent. I thought I was going to live forever. Well, I didn't, I, I wished I, I would live forever, but 
I was smart enough to know that that was never going to happen. Um, but I think as I got older, that anger changed into, into something else, more of a, at first, a kind of resignation, you know, sort of a reluctant um, acknowledgement that, that I had no control over this. And then gradually with, with time and with some spiritual direction, uh, it became um, a, a much more gentle acceptance. And I think until we accept the reality that our life is impermanent uh, and that we really only have a, a brief time here to do whatever it is we're gonna do, um, you know, life is gonna be kind of frustrating for us. So until I got to the point of acceptance, um, it, it was a much rockier journey than it's been since I've gotten to midlife. Uh, midlife brings a ho whole host of other challenges, but some of those emotional responses to the reality of, of death, um, you know, those have changed and, and, and made my journey a little easier. And, you know, I, I think we can respond with courage. We can res respond with resilience, uh, but sometimes we need the support um, of others. You know, sometimes we need community and we can't just um, have those responses in, in a vacuum. And so some of the work I've done over the years as a rabbi, as a pastor, as a chaplain, you know, have involved offering ministry of presence, um, have, have involved me trying to help people as they grapple um, with this self-awareness. And it's been one of the most fulfilling parts of my, my work. Um, so I don't wanna ramble, I told you it's early in the morning, but, but that's you know, what you make me think about this morning. So I'm glad that particular passage resonated with you, especially as a young man. So thank you for that. Thank you both. And I find that nursing students like Jonas often know exactly what matters. <laughs> so thanks for, for, for calling attention to this part of the, of the text, Jonas. Um, next up, we have Caleb looking at chapters three and four and offering up an hors d'oeuvre from there. Yeah, uh, it's so good to be with you and an honor to be speaking alongside Jonas and uh, Rabbi Goldstein. Um, so the first chapter I focused on focused on the story of Cain and Abel and asked the question, am I my brother's keeper? And this question opens up so many questions. Are we truly and solely responsible for our actions? Does God not bear some, res some responsibility for giving us the choice of harming others? And of course, we know the story of Cain that after he kills his brother and God comes to talk with him, Cain asks, am I my brother's keeper? And Cain traditionally in both the Christian and Jewish traditions is viewed as some kind of a monster. He's asking a snarky question. He doesn't really want an answer from God. But over time, other scholars have brought in a more nuanced view. What if Cain was genuinely asking what his responsibility is to others? And this is a question that people of faith continue to ask. Doesn't God bear some responsibility for the evil in the world? This is a truly intriguing question, but it is one I and Rabbi Goldstein agree that we can't fully solve the answer to. However, we know that the responsibility for our own actions does not solely fall on the shoulders of God, but also on our own shoulders. But it's not asking this question. Cain's question in itself is not what's uh, what makes Cain into the traditionally viewed evil character. It is the way he asks the question. 
even more dangerous and damaging than his action is his feigned ignorance and indifference that makes him the anathema we can view him as. If we want to learn from Cain, we should focus less on his act of violence and instead on his attitude afterwards. And this has true bearing in our lives. When we commit violence, when we're jealous, do we pretend we didn't know what we were doing or do we show remorse and come to God begging forgiveness and direction? We are our brother's keepers. We have responsibility to one another. And when we wrong our brothers, we wrong God and we must show remorse. The second chapter in my section then continues on in this similar vein of questioning. Since God has made us our brother's keepers, what is our purpose during our time on earth and what must we do to follow God? The question that Rabbi Goldstein focuses on here is from Deuteronomy 10. And the question is, what does the Lord your God demand of you? In the text, Moses is the one asking this question. And I wonder, does he ask it rhetorically? And Rabbi Goldstein wrestles with this as well. Does Moses truly have the answer and expect the people of God to know the answer without further prompting? But Rabbi Goldstein states that Moses asks this question more than anything to have the people wrestle with this question. Why, not just what their religious practice is, but why do they even have a religious practice? What is the purpose of their rituals and rules? And the question that Moses then gives to his own question, what does the Lord your God demand of you? Only this, to fear the Lord your God, to walk only in his paths, to love him and to serve their Lord your God with all your heart and soul, keeping the Lord's commandments and laws, which I enjoin upon you today for your good. So there are many, many aspects of this answer, but the most central aspect of Moses' answer is of the Yorah, the fear of the Lord. But of course, what does it mean in itself to fear God? Do we fear God's punishment? Do we fear God's majesty? And to what purpose do we fear God? Rabbi Goldstein deftly walks through many of the potential answers to these questions and lands on the message that God does not require faith of us only for our individual good nor only for our individual salvation or communion with God, but also for our communal and societal benefit in the present life. So what does the Lord require of us along with keeping our brother's welfare in mind? To walk humbly with God for both individual and societal betterment and to ask our questions of God and of one another in good faith and with the good of all in mind. So Rabbi, Rabbi Goldstein, I'd be happy to have you respond to anything I've uh, said above. Um, but I'm also incredibly intrigued by your scholarly journey and process. Uh, you quote rabbis from centuries ago as deftly as you quote C.S. Lewis and Robert Frost. Um, so how do you choose whom to cite and rely on in your faith and scholarship? Uh, and if you have more time, which I, uh, you could also address, the fear of God versus the love of God, we can have only one which is more important. Oh boy, that's a lot. <laughs> Caleb, thank you. Um, let me just touch on, on a couple of those things. I really appreciate your kind words and, um, and conveying the ways in which um, my book worked for you. Um, in terms of your, your last question, you know, when I'm writing a book, um, sometimes what I, you know, my books are pretty eclectic. Uh, I try to write for the general reader, not necessarily the, the academic scholar, although I try to make the books, you know, thoughtful and, and intelligent, you know, they are focused on general spirituality usually. Um, some of it is just stream of consciousness. You know, for example, in the chapter on um, uh, 
Moses's question, you know, what is it that God requires of us? You know, if, if uh, a passage from literature seems to make sense in terms of fitting it into what I'm trying to say, um, I'll do that as opposed to a passage from scripture um, or Robert Frost, you mentioned, you know, poetry. He's got a poem called The Fear of God. For me, it was just remembering the title of that poem and then just sort of unpacking it and seeing if it works within the chapter. I think my overall point is to say that um, it's not just religious scholars and it's not just scripture that uh, are interested in these big existential questions. It's also philosophers, it's poets, it's writers, it's psychologists, it's anthropologists, you know, it's artists. Any thoughtful human being is going to ask these questions, you know, what is our responsibility toward other people? You know, are we going to die or, or how do we respond to the fact that we're going to die? Uh, what is our purpose on earth? So I don't think that's the provenance only of religion. And so I guess when I bring in passages from other genres, maybe unconsciously, I'm trying to make that case, you know, that, that as much as I find religion one of the most fascinating human institutions, uh, I think it brings out the worst in people, but I also think it brings out the best in people. Um, other human institutions, you know, do the same thing. So I think that that's part of why I, I bring in those other materials. Uh, quickly to your other uh, points with Cain and Abel. Yeah, it's fascinating when you dig more deeply about the Cain and Abel story and his famous question, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Most people do interpret that as Cain being morally indifferent or callous or, or this kind of sociopath, this kind of monster. Uh, but a more sympathetic reading, uh, and I talk about a lot of more sympathetic readings in the chapter, as you point out, you know, it's all about inflection. He's not, he's not sarcastically and rhetorically, you know, saying, you know, am I my brother's keeper? He's saying, am I, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Because there's no, there's no covenant yet at that point in the book of Genesis. There are no 10 commandments. There's been no revelation at Mount Sinai. Cain has no moral set of rules by which to live his life. He doesn't know what he's supposed to do. You know, suddenly these two brothers are born from Adam and Eve, and they have no no um, set, no moral uh, um, uh, signposts about how to live their lives. So a more sympathetic reading is he just doesn't know what to do. And, and in some ways, that points to what I talk about in the next chapter that you bring up, this idea of, uh, and I talk about free will versus predetermination in that chapter. Um, I can't really get into that now, but but it gets into the idea of, of, of religion itself with Moses's question. You know, what does the Lord your God require of you? We need the apparatus, in my opinion, of institutional religion. And I was ordained through the reform movement in, in Judaism. And I think there are a lot of parallels with, with Mennonites, maybe not old order Mennonites as much, but I think you wrestle with religious observance and religious practice just as much as we do. And in my experience, it's very hard to be spiritual without the apparatus of religious practice, without the discipline of, of going to church or, or synagogue, or in my case, uh, just to throw out a few practices, keeping kosher, um, you know, lighting candles on the Sabbath, 
um, saying certain prayers before you go to bed at night or when you wake up in the morning, or following some of the more moral practices like honoring your mother and father, welcoming the stranger, um, lifting up the downtrodden, et cetera, et cetera. I think without the apparatus, without the the, the moral and, and ritual practices of institutional religion, it's very hard to, to live a spiritual life, in my opinion. Um, and it's very hard, I think, to have that sense of, of purpose, even though a lot of people try. I think we need moral rules. I think we need ritual behaviors um, in order to, to have that sense of community and to learn from those who came before us. Um, so I think I'll stop with that now, just in the interest of time. But uh, you bring up a lot of important points, and I would just say, you know, read the book, and you'll you'll learn a little bit more about um, how I deal with with those questions. Wonderful. Thank you so much, and thank you, Caleb, for the the reflections that prompted that rich response. Next up is Tim Seidel. Thanks, Marty. And thanks, Rabbi Goldstein, for being here with us this week. It's it's so wonderful. And, and gratitude to my co-panelists. It's wonderful to be on this panel with you all. I uh, really appreciate this interfaith space at EMU. Um, and in that spirit, I, I'd also like to wish a, a Ramadan Kareem to all of our Muslim uh, friends and community members this morning, this afternoon. Um, the two chapters um, I had the chance to focus in on were chapter chapters five and six. And these are the two uh, kind of focal points that I'll just name up front. One is, is a question on the role of the university. And the second is about the spirituality of community. So chapter five is, is titled A Definition of Madness. Um, and in this chapter, uh, Rabbi Gullison, you open with a story about a time you chased a tornado in Texas, uh, reflecting on your fascination with extreme weather. And the text you meditate on is Genesis 3.13. What is this you have done? Words spoken by God to Adam and Eve after they ate from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. So in this second creation story, Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden. And you write, quote, the cost of free will and unrestrained curiosity is a life of detachment and alienation from their creator, unquote. And as you reflect on the temptations of forbidden fruits, you go on to write that, quote, the finite human mind will never be able to fathom the mystery of the infinite one. God is forever beyond us, unquote. You, you use this, you go on to describe this very fine line as, as, uh, as demonstrated in the story about Adam and Eve between the reward of illumination and the risk of annihilation. Um, and you point out um, the pursuit of mystical knowledge has been seen by some rabbinic authorities as a transgressive distraction from religious observance, which is an interesting connection to what you just said. I, I, um, but you relate this more largely to this disconnect between knowledge and morality, noting that some argue that while we've made tremendous intellectual and even technological progress, our moral knowledge hasn't evolved in similar ways. And there's a danger you describe in ambition and overreach in ceaseless boundless striving. And uh, this is for another time, but I, I think I hear a critique of the logic of capital in that as well. Um, and this really got me thinking about other technological developments, information technology, AI, social media, and the ways that even as these technologies seem to bring us closer together, they simultaneously create these powerful separations. 
So uh, the, the question that's prompted from this chapter is, could you say more about that disconnect between knowledge and morality and specifically in the context of the university? What's the role of the university in walking that fine line? So in chapter uh, six, yeah, I'll just yeah, I'll, I'll just quit talking. I'll just say quickly, chapter six oh, with separation anxiety. Um, you talk about this tension here about community and 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 uh, and solitude, um, and you tell this this incredible story um, about this beautiful encounter with a, a new member of your congregation um, that helped you um, understand Torah as communal, as a communal search for meaning and purpose, moving you to a spirituality of community and not of isolation. And, and you, quote a, you quote a verse from, from Pirkei Avot, quote, when two sit together and exchange words of Torah, then the divine presence dwells with them. And then the biblical text for this chapter is Psalm 22, 2, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And you say that Psalm 22 is getting at this important theological idea in Judaism of hester panim, hiding God's face. You offer really important responses and reflections to these questions of divine presence and maybe more importantly of divine absence. Um, and, and your reflection on Jacob's dream in particular in Genesis 28 was very powerful for me, right? Where God appears, stands right next to Jacob, Jacob assuring him that he will not be abandoned. And then Jacob's response after waking up was, was just as powerful. Jacob says, surely the Lord is present in this place, and I didn't know it. The presence of divine absence is itself a spiritual experience, you say. And you close the chapter by saying, quote, when we reach out beyond ourselves and see the godly in others, when we view other people as assets rather than threats to our spiritual journey, we discover a new portal to God and we grow, unquote. So it can be really hard sometimes to see the godly in others or experience the presence of divine absence. So could you say more about the role of community and even faith community in this, or even interfaith engagements in this, especially this past year, how or where have you experienced the spirituality of community and not of isolation? Thank you, Rabbi Kessling. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. Wow, that's a lot to unpack also. Um, you know, I've wrestled with this tension between solitude and community most of my adult life, including the 26 years I've been a rabbi. And after EMU, I mean, I, I walked away from being a congregational rabbi for a number of years uh, because I wasn't sure I wanted all of that responsibility. Um, and now four years ago, I moved out to Napa and I took a new congregation and um, it's been a challenging four years, you know, both with the previous um, presidential administration, the wildfires, you know, climate change and, and the polarized uh, culture and country in which we all live. Um, but it has been incredibly rewarding to wrestle with these challenges with other people rather than just alone, um, you know, um, in, in my house and with my own thoughts. So I think we grow more through relationships than in isolation. And when I was younger, you know, sort of going back to your first uh, question, you know, I, I was more interested in the adrenaline rush of these peak experiences in nature uh, or chasing tornadoes or these mystical experiences that the rabbis sort of warned people about. Um, they can be very powerful, they can be very transformative, but they can draw us away from normative religious practices. They can draw us away 
from relationships with other people. And if all we're doing is pursuing the high of spiritual ecstasy, you know, we, we do become more alienated and detached from the moral, um, the moral challenges of our world. You know, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, lifting up the downtrodden, as, as I said before, welcoming the refugee. Um, so for me, as I get older, I, I, I do see that community is, is absolutely vital for all of this. And just really quickly to touch on your point about forbidden fruit um, in the academy, I think the academy is critical to, for, for engendering um, respectful dialogue, debate, contestation, especially you know, in the interfaith context. We're not gonna all agree on everything. That's totally fine as long as we can do it in a respectful way. That's the only way we grow. grow. Um, but some forms of knowledge uh, can be dangerous. Um, you know, just think about what we can do in terms of science and technology now, the advances we've made in those areas. We can clone things without asking whether or not we should clone things. You know, we've developed nuclear energy that can destroy the world many times over instead of asking the moral question, you know, should we be working in that area? Look at what happened with the killing of George Floyd and the verdict yesterday. You know, there, there have been all these advances um, in the way uh, our, our country is run, and yet the moral issue of racism is still front and center. So I don't think our moral knowledge has kept up necessarily with our advances in science and technology and in other areas. And, and that's a real challenge. And I think a lot of religious leaders uh, try to call us to account uh, for that. And, and you know, I, I think that's where religion can really play a role, you know, in as the prophets do in, in calling truth uh, to power. So I'll, I'll stop with, with that, but you bring up a lot of really great points. Once again, thank you, Rabbi Goldstein, and thank you, Tim, very much. Fatima, what would you like for us to know, and what would you like to hear from Rabbi Goldstein about the final two chapters of the book, Eight Questions of Faith? Well, um, in the beginning, I was surprised um, when I started reading the book because I expected it to be a religious collection of, like, firm beliefs of yours, but then I as I started reading, it was full with life experiences, and I was fascinated how you explained your life experiences as it was not easy, especially when you decided to move on and move to New Zealand and then came to Virginia and all of these things, they were not easy steps. And you explained that oftentimes in books, I just see the protagonist, which is you in this case, would just jump to conclusion and be like, so I did this and now I'm the happiest person in the world. But you did not do that. You were like, I was depressed, I was scared, but I saw my friends and I thought that I should be in the same stage as they are, but I was in a completely different place, yet I was still able to keep going, which is really brave. Um, the second point is I really loved your quote that you said, we may not always return to the place from which we begin our journey, but we can rest assured that we will arrive in a place that offers, uh, offers us a fresh start, renewed perspective, unexpected opportunities, and a new sense of home. 
um, I put a heart around this because it was really beautiful. I also loved your um, admi admiration for nature. And when you start talking to how the Renaissance poets and artists start talking about going back to nature as a way of finding themselves and also the rebirth and how like do men rebirth as well, just like the trees or anything else. And do we have the opportunity to do so? And then you said, yes, by forgiveness and new experiences, which was beautiful. And also when you talked about the tornado and how much you wanted to get close to it. And I think that's this is like one of the biggest struggles as humans we face. We always want to get away from the tornado, the, the things that we experience inside. But once we get closer and we try to see it for what it is, that tornado will just vanish and go away. And I love when you said in the end, this book is not um, a rule book. It's just a travel guidance of my own journey. And yes. Thank you, Fatima. Um, you know, since the tornado idea has come up a couple times, let me just say, you know, you remind me of the book of Job, because in the book of Job, um, and I don't remember if I touch on this in, in my book, but, you know, the image of the whirlwind, the image of the tornado um, appears. And in some ways, it's a metaphor for God, you know, because it's enthralling, it's engaging, it's terrifying, it's awe-inspiring, and we can't really get too close to it. We, we can never really fully engage with the tornado. Of course, we know that God is other things as well. God is the still small voice. God is that personal uh, dimension, not just the transcendent one. Um, and I think life is this dance between the tornado and the still small voice you know, the, the transcendent and, and the imminent nature of the divine. Um, you know, I have always tried in, in my life and in my writing to be very honest about my personal experiences. You know, I have always thought that being a member of the clergy, and I know we have some seminarians here and folks who teach at the seminary at EMU, um, I know a lot of clergy who unfortunately try to act like they're holier than thou. And they try to act in ways that I think are disingenuous rather than honestly saying, look, I may be a member of the clergy, but I'm still, I'm still a, a person. I'm still a man or I'm still a woman. And I still wrestle with the same things that everyone else wrestles through, whether it's fear or inner demons that hold us back or going through a, a divorce, which is what I talk about in my introduction, or uh, you know, professional disappointments or disenchantment, which I also talk about, you know, where I had sort of burnout in terms of congregational life. So I've always been very open uh, about talking about those challenges and how I have tried to work through them uh, in the hope that other people would resonate with that. And Fatima, you're right. I mean, I've never reached a point where I'm, you know, quote unquote, happy, you know, there's always a new challenge in life, you know, and I, I talk about that as well. I mean, you know, tonight, I'm going to highlight the fact that in my spiritual writing course, you know, I, I only talk about the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And of course, I know Judaism far better than the other two faith traditions. But based on my study and knowledge, I think all three of the Abrahamic traditions 
acknowledge the struggle that we all go through all the time. You know, in Islam, there's the notion of jihad. And I've had great Muslim friends and teachers talk to me about the internal understanding of jihad, the, the inner struggle that we all go through, you know, in order to become better people. Judaism talks about that. Christianity talks about that. Um, struggle, I wrote another book called The Challenge of the Soul. Struggle is, is, is a, a, an inextricable part of, of human nature. And I think it is certainly an inextricable part of the spiritual seeker because we, we want our souls, we want our lives to be better than they were yesterday. And we only do that by looking deep within the muck and mire of who we are. And we always make mistakes, we always slip up, um, we always have room to improve. And, and that's, the, that's the challenge and mission, I think, of a religious person, of a spiritual person. How do we become better tomorrow, th tomorrow than we were today? And it doesn't mean we need to beat ourselves up. Um, it, it does mean we need to practice self-love a little bit, which is hard. That's been hard for me uh, because I'm you know, driven and ambitious in the kind of person I want to be. But, but I try to get into some of those themes in, in this book as well. And you know, as the title implies, um, you know, life is a challenge. You know, it, it, it's not just this kind of uh, Disneyland adventure. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'll just close by, by saying I, I really appreciate all four of you for, for reading the book and for offering your insights. And um, I hope those of you who haven't gotten it or read it will, will do that. And, and you'll come back tonight at 7.30 uh, for my keynote where I'm going to highlight some very specific texts uh, from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that, that deal with some of these issues uh, more deeply than we can really get into this morning. But I really appreciate all of you, um, particularly the panelists, and um, hopefully I'll see you later tonight. Wow, thank you so much. And Fatima, thank you for bringing such obvious heart to the question that you posed. And um, I think that the conversation we've just witnessed really does um, make evident the value of engaging with this text and the, the enjoyment that we can have in coming to it together. So I hope that folks will take advantage of the opportunity to read and reflect more on this book. As we conclude our time together, I would like to um, set forth an intention expressed in Psalm 111, one that I think um, are a set of intentions that all of us represented uh, by this panel can share. And tonight, uh, Rabbi Goldstein will be speaking about the book of Psalms. So this will provide us with a little bit of a segue. And um, I'll, I'll read aloud, but I invite you to join me in reflecting on Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works, 
in giving them the heritage of the nations. The work, works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praises endure forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, um, Niles. Even as people are leaving, it's fine for us to just chat a bit. Uh, you know, we've gotten to know each other. We imagine that we're we're walking out of Lehman Auditorium together, and we're talking a little bit. Yeah. So, and people who are still in the room, uh, it's fine to listen in a little bit too. But yeah, thank you. This was incredibly fun and rich. It was fun. Uh, thank you guys again. I mean, I saw <clears throat> in person, and that we had more time and. Fatima, I'd love to, to uh, if not teach the course again, maybe come back and give a, a lecture or spend a day doing a seminar on it if EMU wants to bring me back again. Um, but I really appreciate all of your questions and, and comments. Um, it took me a year to write the book and uh, it's hard to, to sort of encapsulate it in 40 minutes. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, one one of the things that 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 happens with a special course like that is if there's a visiting scholar through the Center for Interfaith Engagement or some other program, you know, then maybe there's an opportunity for them to teach from their expertise, like like uh, Dr. Akrami did had a course on Islamic mysticism. Yeah. I don't think that course has been repeated uh, since he was here. I don't know that we've had a scholar on Islamic mysticism since he was here. But we would love to have you back, um, Niles. We would love to have you back. We'll just look for the opportunity. Yeah, well, well let me know. Let me know. Um, and I know a lot has happened, you know, since 2014 when I was there. And um, But, you know, as I said, my, my association with, with my formal association with EMU and with the Center for Interfaith Engagement and with the Mennonite world, you know, lasted about two years, but um, the way your community and your institution has had impact on me is huge. And I will always be grateful. Somebody mentioned the word grace earlier and the way that Ed Martin found me and sort of brought me down to EMU, you know, maybe was an act of grace. Uh, and uh, I will always be grateful to you guys for playing a, a really important role in my life during a very difficult time, you know, the time I finished this book. And um, yeah, I mean, that's all I'll say. So I'd, lo I'd love to come back. I have not really been in touch with any Mennonite communities here in California. California is a huge state. You know, I don't know if there are any Mennonite <clears throat> congregations in the Bay Area. There, there must be, but, um, you know, I'd love an introduction if, if anyone wants to make one. Tim, Tim's probably the one might be more aware of uh, communities there. Yeah, Tim, you know, the church has has a has a robust interfaith program too. 
the name of it again? In San Francisco, the Mennonite, the Mennonite community in San Francisco. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, I'd like, you know, because a lot of people in the Jewish community <clears throat> know what Mennonites are. They probably think you guys are all like the Amish and you ride around in buggies. And I said, no, it's not. Ex I mean, they're a little bit like that, but uh, it, you know, it's, it's a very diverse community, just like our community is. Um, and uh, I'd like to actually expose my congregation to, you know, some Mennonite um, speakers. So I, I may explore that. You know, after COVID, of course. A lot of us have moved from the buggy to the Prius. <laughs> yeah. But I'll tell you, when I lived, I lived in Bridgewater when I was there. I didn't live right in um, um, Harrisonburg. And if if you go into sort of the, the country or the county, you know, I did see some, some old, I guess they're called old order Mennonites who were, you know, going around in buggies and uh, it's just... It's a very interesting place and it's a very interesting community. And as I said, I think there are <clears throat> parallels. You know, you have some people who are very progressive uh, and then you have people who are much more conservative. And in the Jewish community, in our ultra-Orthodox community, we have plenty of people who've kind of rejected secularism and the trappings of secularism and um, have sort of um, close themselves off from a lot of the um, trappings of, of modernity. And they live in sort of enclosed communities. Um, and then we also have many people who, you know, are fully immersed in, you know, modernity and in secularism and all of that. And I know Mennonites, you know, have the same thing. Just very quickly on that, uh, Trina Trotter Nussbaum sent me a text and indicated that she'll connect you with folks in San Francisco, that the Mennonite community there shares space with a synagogue. Oh, that would be great to know. Okay, I, 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 was Trina on this? this yes, time? and she'll she'll follow up with you. Okay, no, I, I'd love to do that. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. I have to do some work today and get <clears> ready for <throat> my keynote tonight. Um, but great to see you guys. Thank you all uh, panelists, um, Brian, thank you and, and Marty for, for organizing this. And um, hopefully I'll see you guys at 7.30 tonight. Certainly. All right, take care guys, thank you. Thank yep. you, thanks everybody.